Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. My name is Sam Parada. I'm here again with Cody Weckerly and Adam Nesvold, and we are continuing our series on ecclesiology or what we call the doctrine of the church. And in this episode, we are going to build our case or give a case, we could say, for the church governmental structure or church polity structure of congregationalism. And really, I mean, we've been putting forward really a Baptist ecclesiology uh, that's kind of been our, our, you know, kind of our goal with this podcast series on, on the doctrine of the church is to kind of give a Baptist view of these, of these issues. And the Baptist polity structure is congregationalism. That's kind of the, the more technical term for Baptist polity. And there's two other polity structures, though, that are quite common and that basically other, all other Christian denominations fall under one of these other two, and it's, it's Episcopalianism and Presbyterianism. Now, Episcopalianism is like your hallmark Catholic ecclesiology, but you even have Episcopal church polity within Protestant denominations as well. Obviously, there is the denomination Episcopalianism. Uh, you have Anglicanism. You have Methodism. Uh, even Lutheran theology or Lutheran polity is a, a form of Episcopalian uh, church polity. But then you have this kind of immediate ground in Presbyterianism and Presbyterian polity, and then you get to congregational polity. And so, again, we're giving our, our, our best case, maybe not our best case, we could be more prepared, but <laughs> a, a case for congregational church polity um, over against these other two that are very common in, you know, in Christian circles. So, I mean, let's just talk a little bit about, like, okay, Cody, I know your story. You've been in a lot of different types of churches. I don't think you've ever been a member of a Presbyterian church, but but you've been in part of different congregation or different polity structures. How did you end up being a Baptist or a Congregationalist? Yeah, only once have I uh, been... Uh, I guess someone has attempted to persuade me to a Presbyterian church, my friend Luke Hershey, uh, unsuccessfully. But, <laughs> uh, you know, grew up in a Methodist church. Yeah. When I went to college, joined a quote-unquote non-denominational church. It was really connected with a group of churches called Great Commission Churches. Okay. Then jumped over to an evangelical free church, and then left for seminary yeah. out of Grace Community Church which is connected with independent fundamentalist yeah. network, or I forget what it is. Right. Uh, IFCA, maybe is what they're called. And then uh, out to Michigan, independent Bible church. Yep. And now here we are, part of a Baptist network known as Converge. Right. And so those last three, uh, Faithy Free up in Grand Forks, obviously Grace Community Church, First Baptist Church in Farmington, and then Harvest Plains now, they're all, in a sense, congregational yep. in their structure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, Adam, I think you've, you've basically been a Baptist, like, your whole well, life, maybe? I mean, you went to a Lutheran I school. I grew up Lutheran. Okay, you grew up Lutheran. Yep. Yep. So you grew up with a, a little bit of a, a taste of the Episcopalian model. Mm-hmm. And same with me. I grew up Lutheran as well. And, I, I mean, I had when you grow up as a kid in, in that type of— 
You're not, paying, you're not paying attention you're not to paying church attention. government. And yeah, you don't understand this. Yeah. <laughs> you have a pastor and you just, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, then when I got to college, I started going to Ignite, which is a Baptist church, part of Converge as well, and started to get a taste of what congregationalism looks like. But then, really, I mean, it, was, it wasn't until like helping plant Harvest Plains where we, where I was really, you know, assaulted with like, okay, we have to think about how do you actually structure a church? Who has the authority in a church? What is the role of the church member? These are big questions that we have to a- answer. Who has the power? Yeah, and it's an interesting discussion because even in historically Episcopalian context, now we've seen a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of movement even yeah. within Lutheran churches, right? So now you've got Lutheran Brethren churches, you've yeah. got uh, Lutheran Free churches, and uh, they actually function with uh, a polity similar mm-hmm. to our Baptist polity. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everybody's asking this question, how should the church be ordered? Right. And the key question is, uh, how does the Bible prescribe the church to function? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we really do believe, as Baptist Congregationalists, we do believe that the Bible actually does give us a prescription. We don't, we don't just think, oh, it it's, it's doesn't say anything about it. You're free to, to structure yourself and order yourself in any way that you deem appropriate or, you know, necessary or pragmatic or whatever. So, and I think that most poly structures would, would believe that there is a prescription and they're kind of trying to make their case from scripture. Obviously Catholics very much make their case with a, a more of a, an odd idea of apostolic succession that we don't see in scripture, but they're building a lot of their governmental structure off of that reality. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, that's, I mean, you've heard the question before, like, why are there so many different denominations, and what, what makes them different? Well, there's just a couple main things that differentiate them for the most part. It's polity, governmental structure, yep. who's in charge. Ordinances. <laughs> Ordinances. Uh, yeah, how, what do we believe about baptism? What do, we, what do we believe about the Lord's Supper? And then, for the most part, after that, just some theological things. But, yeah, for the most part, it's polity and the ordinances that really differentiate the different denominations. Yeah, and that's very clear when you look back at the time of the Reformation, yeah. um, where the first uh, fissures started to form, yeah. right? And the chasms were over the ordinances. Exactly. Yeah, yep. for sure. Okay, so what is congregationalism? What is congregational church polity? In the first, like, in the first place, like, just a really easy, rough definition, and and then we'll kind of go from there. Do you have a do you have a definition off the top of your mind, Cody? <laughs> well, I would say that at a basic level, uh, congregationalism is where the authority, the keys, quote unquote, from Matthew sixteen, the keys of the kingdom, right, are ultimately given to the members, the body uh, of the church, right. And so it wasn't given to a select single person right. or select group of people. Uh, it is given to the church. The church is comprised of many members. Right. Therefore, the authority rests with the members. The members. Right. Exactly. It's not localized to one individual or a group of individuals that have this, you know, special name, bishop or whatever. Um, 
I'm just going to actually read some Jonathan Lehman stuff here because again, he. I'm just, sure he says it much better than yeah, I just did. He he gives just very, just quick kind of definitions of these three these three types of polity structures. Episcopalian, he says, the bishop possesses authority and responsibility to organize a gathering of believers and their children as a church. Basis of institutional unity is one, gathering together, two, under the binding authority of a minister and a bishop, and three, who in turn is institutionally affiliated with other bishops. So you're not, like, in the Episcopalian structure, especially as best represented in Catholicism, you're not a church unless there's a bishop president present who is tied to the other bishops and that's what then unifies the church universal to all these different local expressions they're unified in, in their in their bishops and their bishops being connected successively all the way back to the apostles and and peter if in roman catholicism obviously so the bishop is kind of the 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 thing like if you you have to have this guy who has this this it's a very top-down approach right yeah. i mean we're talking about a hierarchical structure. Exactly. But it has to start at the top and it works its way down. Exactly. For sure. So Trickle pre- down religion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> Presbyterian then. Uh, the presbytery possesses authority and responsibility to organize a gathering of believers and their children as a church. Now, the basis of institutional unity is one, gathering together, two, under the binding authority of a session group of elders, a session is just a group of elders, and a presbytery. And then three, which in turn is institutionally affiliated with other presbyteries. And then there's the elder-ruled presbytery model, and that's where elders possess church organizing authority and responsibility, but each church is independent. The elders govern their own church, not multiple churches, and their basis of institutional unity is one gathering together, two under the binding authority of the elders. So again, yeah, you have some nuance within the Presbyterian model. There's there's a little bit of a spectrum. And then you have the congregational model, which, as Cody said, the gathered congregation of believers possess authority and responsibility to organize itself and its children in some denominations as a church. Basis of institutional unity is gathering together into under the binding authority of the congregation. So again, ultimately, at the end of the day, where does the authority lie where who has the keys of the kingdom and again maybe that's a little bit of a an obscure phraseology like keys of the kingdom what are you talking about there we'll, we'll get into that that's kind of a big like that's the whole discussion in a sense it's it kind a major, of boils major piece of major it. piece like who has the keys yeah like think about that just even just conceptually like okay you have this whatever this building like who has the keys to open it up who gets to determine who's in and who's out yep and and that determines these different polity structures of who do, who has the keys. Does the congregation have the keys? Do the elders have the keys? Does the bishop have the keys? And and that's kind of the discussion for the most part. So let's get into that then. Let's actually just go to Matthew 16 and and look at this this text. There's a couple, you know, there's these two kind of parallel texts a little bit, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And and this is where we see this idea of the keys brought up. And so Matthew 16, you know, maybe in your Bible, if you're looking at it, it has this heading, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And starting in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked 
his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for blessed for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So there we have that, you know, this central statement. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Yeah, and it's important to point out that verses 18 and 19 are like two of the most taken out of context and misunderstood verses in the entire New Testament. (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're certainly one of them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is where Catholics are getting their... Their, their belief of apostolic succession from. They're yeah. saying, look, Jesus clearly gave Peter, specifically Peter, the keys, and he they he's basically specifically saying that he's building the church on Peter, yeah. who's this rock. And I would say that even within Protestant circles, we also kind of have a similar debate, okay? Yeah. Nobody is completely writing out that Peter is put in an influential role. Yeah, exactly. There are certainly those who would say that uh, the keys, quote-unquote, that are being given technically is the confession of the gospel itself, right? Uh, The confession that Jesus himself is Lord, right? Right. Uh, But you could also take the position that Peter really is, in a sense, the foundation of the Church here. Yeah. But even if you admit such a thing, you're still a long ways off from the... uh, Catholic understanding of Peter and apostolic secession and, uh, of course, papal infallibility and those type of things, right? It's a long cry. Uh, This text can't be used to support that type of concept. Right. So, and and as we see later on in Scripture, there's a good reason uh, why you shouldn't believe in papal infallibility, because if Peter himself is indeed the first pope uh, and the Pope is infallible, and I, I, I get that they probably parse this out, right, where he's infallible when he's speaking from the chair of Peter, right, and so on and so forth. But, I mean, you see how fallible Peter is just as an individual oh, man. shortly thereafter, right? Because what is going to be the next thing that happens? Uh, well, he's ultimately going to be rebuked by Jesus, <laughs> get behind because Satan. Jesus is going to tell him, uh, okay, well, guess what? Uh we're going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, me, right, <laughs> must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And then Peter's here he is. Ah, far should that be, right? That yeah, that yeah. should happen. Far be it. Uh, and then Jesus replied, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. And uh, that will just be the first among many faults for Peter. He right. will then go on, we know later, after Jesus is betrayed, and yep. then he's going to deny Jesus three times. Yep. And then even after that, we find out in Galatians, this is post-resurrection, yeah. where he is failing again, where Paul has to rebuke Peter, right. because Peter is acting hypocritically, and through his actions, certainly undermining the message of the right. gospel. Right, exactly. So it's just, the case is cannot be made 
if you just stick to the New Testament. Uh, and then that's the problem too with it is like once you get into the first, second, even third century church, like you don't see this idea of all authority resting on the immediate like successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. And again, the, the connection with, with Peter to Rome in any way is loose as well. It's, it's this, they think that Peter was eventually martyred in Rome, and so they connect him with the Roman church. And then therefore then the Roman bishop is, is the, the direct successor of Peter. And that's just, again, that's just very shaky for the f- most part. Like we have better evidence that Paul was connected to Rome, obviously. He, write, he writes the epistle to the Romans. We know he went to Rome. We know he was killed in Rome without a doubt. We don't really know that about Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, the tradition's a little bit more uh, shaky. Uh, so it's just, it's just a tough case. Like, yeah, in the second century, quickly do we start to see authority resting on a plurality, a plurality of bishops with what became the, um, the, really the, the, what am I, I'm missing the name, patriarchs, is that right? Mm-hmm. Five of them, you have Rome, you have Alexandria, you have Antioch, you have Jerusalem, and you have Constantinople. Is that five? Did I, is that five? Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, Jerusalem. Yeah, five. And, and there was a hierarchy of them. Like, Rome was put first eventually, but for the most part, they, they didn't think that Rome, the Roman bishop, was over any of the other bishops that were over these other cities. And that started to develop. So this, this, it's a really shaky argument to tie the pope and the bishop of Rome all the way back to Peter and say it was this unbroken chain. The early church did not see this at all. And historically speaking, it's just it's not there. Yeah, actually, there's a good summary here uh, in uh, the Five Views book on church mm. governance. Yeah. And uh, in their uh, historical review section, uh, they say this here. Um, by the year AD 200, there was an increasing tendency to view the church as an organizational hierarchy with bishops at the top, presbyters in the middle, and the laity at the bottom. That is not to say that the monarchical episcopacy, bishops and rulers, was fully developed by this time. Indeed, one might argue that the bishops at this time were more like the conveners of presbyterial synods than as judges of final appeal. So, I mean, the first 200 years of the church then, again, you didn't have any standard that was set, and in fact... If you look at the patriarchs, again, uh, you end up finding that, uh, or the patristic fathers, um, you end up finding that there was a recognition early on of the two offices that we as congregationalists hold to. Elders and deacons. Of elders and deacons. Yeah, Yeah. and the, the reason why even authority started to get localized to the bishops even, uh, even if it was still considered a plurality of bishops that held the authority, was this assault of you know heresy and and false teaching and there it became this well we don't have the apostles anymore to really kind of just give this definitive statement no that's that's false teaching this is this is apostolic teaching and so they kind of felt this this need uh, to 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 really kind of recreate that apostolic authority and say well we need just we need some people we need some men who can just say this is this is orthodox this is heterodox this is this is heresy this is this is good teaching 
and it became almost like a pragmatic thing. Like in order to to resist Gnosticism, Marcionism, and other other heresies that were cropping up, we just need a guy that just can say, nope, that's 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 right, that's wrong. And it, it, it wasn't it was this thing that developed out of a, a feeling of need. And it wasn't anything that was clearly passed down from uh, the apostles' way of doing church government, nor was it something that was clearly derived or drawn out from Scripture. Yeah. And, and like I said, early on, you had people who were readily admitting that there were two offices. Yeah. You could, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, he differentiates these two offices. Uh, even in the Didache, which you hear mentioned a lot, which yeah. is the earliest document we have in, in terms of church order or uh, those type of things, and that is dated back, you know, sometime between 80, uh, AD 80 and AD 150. Uh, it says in the Didache, appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons. Yeah. So earliest document that we have as far as a manual of church order, and, uh, you know, that's what we have mentioned. Yeah, and just to just to clarify too, like there's three New Testament words. We have episkopos, which is what we translate as bishop or overseer. Yep. We have presbyteros, which is what we translate as elder, and then we have uh, what is it, point pointman, right? Yeah, Something for shepherd. Like for shepherd, yeah, pastor shepherd. Mm -hmm. And we would say all three of those are referring to the same office, the same man. And that the, the, that there should be a plurality of these, as we see in you know First Timothy and Titus, so in other you know Ephesians twenty these these texts that clearly show us that there's a plurality of these elders. But I mean, what is it First Peter five that he clearly connects all, all those words them, yep. to the, to one office, one man who operates as an overseer, as an elder, and as a shepherd. Uh, so you know, the early church tended to, you know kind of focus more on this bishop aspect or the overseer aspect and maybe even start to delineate and think that these are different offices that bishop and elder and pastor are are separate and so you you tend to have this development of okay there's the bishop then there's the presbyter and so on and so on so yeah i mean at the end of the day though we can we can be pretty confident i mean very very confident that this whole idea of apostolic succession and that peter was the first pope and that the bishop of Rome has 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 authority over all other bishops and all other churches is just it's not there. It's not there. Right. It's right. And and again, if you go back to the fact that if you want to make an argument that Peter represented a foundational part of the early church. That can be made. Oh yeah, you could totally make that Ephesians argument. In fact, exactly. And you should make that argument. Yep. But it wasn't built on him alone. We're actually told in Ephesians two twenty. Uh that it's built on the foundation, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the, the cornerstone. cornerstone. Yep. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, th and the thing about that, like, okay, yeah, Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the thing that holds it all together. You have this foundation. Think about the prophets and the apostles in the first part. They, they did have a unique role. They were able to write and speak God-inspired words. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and the canon of Scripture is closed, and even Catholics believe that the canon of Scripture is closed. And so it's just this odd idea that, now, yeah, they get into really muddy water when they start to say that the Pope, you know, being the successor of Peter, is able to speak infallible words in his, his, his 
his you know, I was going to say, they, they don't necessarily mean what you think they mean right. when they say the cannon is closed because, again— uh, They muddy the know, water there with that. Councils yep. and the Pope can actually make statements. Of course, they would right. say they're clarifying words already spoken, right. but these are still authoritative right. uh, decrees at a level that seems to be on par with Scripture itself. Yep. yep. So that just muddies the water. Two heads is a monster. Something needs to be the ultimate authority. And, and we believe that the scriptures alone are the ultimate authority, and that the, the apostles and the prophets were the ones that were inspired to write scripture. And eventually, when, they, when the apostles and prophets ceased, then we have no more scripture. So, yeah, you have a foundation. The foundation is laid. And in any building project, what happens when the foundation is, is laid? Well, it, you, it's, it's buried in a sense. and You, you can't build, lay it again. You can't lay it again, and you build upon it. You don't, you don't keep building the foundation. You, keep, you don't keep having the foundation. That doesn't make any sense. You build a, on it, and, and that's what we're, we're at now. And so you have, you have leaders. You have people who are equipped and gifted, the, the evangelist shepherd teachers in Ephesians 4, that continue and carry on the work of building the church that was laid on the apostles and prophets, and they do that by teaching the faith or teaching the doctrine the apostolic faith that came by way of the apostles and prophets, but it's 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 a teaching, it's an explanation, it's a continual application of that ap- apostolic teaching. The apostolic teaching is, is done. It's there. We have it. Now we continue to teach it and apply it to our lives. And God uniquely gifts and calls certain men, you know, elders, shepherds, overseer types, to do that. So admittedly, yeah. the one thing that we've just talked about is that you can't— make, say, even a case for congregationalism on the basis of Matthew 16 alone, right? Sure. I mean, I mean in fact, that wouldn't be your primary text no. that you go to for proving congregationalism. No. But we, we are touching on it because it seems to be the primary text that people will use to support other models of church governance, right. and they will say, this is the definitive text. And we would say that there are a lot of other passages that shed light exactly. on church polity in addition to this that really lead us in the direction of a congregational polity. Exactly. You can't take this text in isolation. We get the idea of the keys here, and, and now we have to go to other texts to try to figure out, what it, okay, what, what is this? Who has the, the keys? Yeah, and sorry, if I can point out one more thing about the apostles and, um, and elders real quick. I think it's important to note that the apostles, while they obviously knew and claimed a very unique and special role, they also viewed themselves as elders. Oh, um, for sure. You know, um, John called himself exactly. An elder. In um, John and Peter second, called himself an elder. Yeah, um, John in, in second and third John opens the letter by saying the elder too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, that, that's very important. And obviously, Paul in his letters to Timothy and Titus. Uh, teaching exhaustively on the role of elders. And as you said, Peter called himself an elder. So it's important to keep that in mind, that they viewed themselves as elders along with having their special role as apostles that they claimed. Right. And that's another kind of side argument, uh, supporting argument for congregationalism, is Paul, when you start to read his letters, as he's correcting the Corinthian church and other churches, he's very much trying to get them to take matters into their own hands and to, and to kind of like p- 
possess their own authority. Like, yeah, he could he could come with apostolic authority. He knows he has it. But, I mean, you could read between the lines pretty easily that Paul understands that this apostolic office isn't continuing. Well, yeah, I mean, in 2 Corinthians, he even says, well, I didn't come to you right. because I— you know, because he didn't want to have to like harshly discipline them, mm-hmm. he wanted them to correct themselves so that then he could come to them with joy. Right, um, it, which is you know and exactly it, to your point. And it, with the with the issue with the man who is committing incest and you know kick him out from among you, First Corinthians five, he's he's basically saying, you guys do this, you can do this, mm-hmm. like take matters into your own hands and do this. I don't need to do this for you. Well, you're now jumping the gun. I know. I'm I jumping get, the gun. You're yeah. jumping the but gun gall. here. I mean, you're getting into... I just got a way ahead Now of you're getting into more so, of the wow. primary but, arguments oh, for a congregation. Yeah, 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 sorry. But still, cool. at this at this point, though, I think some of what we've we covered... we got to go to Matthew 18. Forgive me for recapping, yeah. but essentially what we've pointed out here is that, again, there isn't an argument to be made that there is only authority resting with the leaders on the basis of Matthew 16. Yes. Okay? Right. Uh, it, it, it is to show, though, that the apostles formed an important foundation of the church. However, as we talk about congregational polity, uh, we come to this discussion understanding that there are so many different expressions of congregational polity. Yeah. So you have a single elder type of government, right. and then you have a plurality, right? Yeah. And so Congregationalism I think, isn't monolithic. And so it's like, you know, you have elder-led congregational polity, you have elder ruled congregational yeah, yeah. polity. So there's a lot to sort out in the congregational camp where it's like, what is the fullest or best representation of the Bible when it comes to congregational polity? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's good. Thanks for reeling me back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we go to Matthew 18 and, and tie this, because it's in a very you know proximal context to Matthew 16, and we see this phrase, binding and loosing, brought back up. Yep. Uh, so... Again, Matthew 18, starting in verse uh, 15, right? Yeah, 15 and through 20. This is like the hallmark church discipline text. Now, can, can you want to say something else? Well, uh, um, as it relates to Matthew 18, um, I, can you read verse, verses like verse 1 and then jump to verse 15? Oh, sure. I can do that. Okay. <laughs> oh, man, that's tough. <laughs> So, starting in verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, do you want me to jump? Or do you yeah. just want me to read yeah, all that? Yeah, because I just think it's important to, to, the, set to the context. note, like, like, G, like, this is who Jesus is speaking to. He's talking to. to the disciples. Yeah, he's speaking to the disciples. Then, then he goes on to this teaching about, right. about this, and then verse 15 is just a continuation of sure. Jesus' teaching yes. here to, the, to the disciples. And then he says... Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Okay, keep that in mind. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, 
it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, this text by some ecclesiologists who defend and argue for the congregational polity structure or what we might even call the free church structure. Sometimes you hear that phraseology as well, free church. Uh, this is kind of the bread and butter text. Because one, it's giving a definition, as we talked about earlier a few podcast episodes ago, about what a church is. First and foremost, I mean, among one of the essential elements of what the church is is it's a gathering of Christians who believe in and profess and confess the same gospel and have been saved and regenerated. So it's a gathering of them. And that is what we see here. Jesus is talking about the gathered church. He's, he's using the word ecclesia. He's talking about the gathering. And he even says, it will be done for them by, or, wait, where two or three are gathered in my name. And there's an agreement among them. So this brother has sinned. You go to him per- privately. If he doesn't repent, bring a couple others. If he still doesn't repent, repent bring it to the church, in front of the church, in, among the gathered saints. And then he says, where two or three are gathered in my name. Basically, when they agree on something, that that is the wielding of the keys. You have this phraseology of binding and loosing, connects it immediately to two chapters earlier where, he, where, where Jesus connects the keys of the kingdom with the binding and loosing. You're basically saying who's in, who's out, who professes the same gospel and confesses the same gospel we believe in, and and who gets to wield those keys? Well, clearly, it seems like the 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 assembled church, the gathered church, they possess the keys. Yeah. So among Jewish rabbis, binding and loosing were terms to denote certain types of conduct that were either prohibited, bound, yep. or permitted, loosed, forbidden, or authorized. And so the sense is that the church has been given the authority to declare what God approves of and what God disapproves of, and who God approves of and who God does not approve of. So... So are you saying then that the churches that said that they bound COVID or bound Satan <laughs> on any given Sunday, that that's not the way that this works? Uh, I don't think that's how it works. No, I don't think that's how it works. Uh, obviously, the church has been given a delegated authority, yeah, right? Exactly. And its responsibility is to decree things that are true in heaven on earth, mm-hmm. right? And uh, there are times when the church can get this wrong. Uh, there are times when the church can mistakenly someone say someone is an unbeliever when really they are a believer. But, you know, if the church carries out this process of Matthew 18 prayerfully, faithfully, dependent upon the Holy Spirit, the idea is that all the church ends up declaring is something that is already true, and it's true in heaven. Right, exactly. Yep. I'm going to link, read a lengthy quote from Lehman because he says things better than I can. <laughs> he says, The keys give the authority, one, to assess whether some confession, doctrine, or practice is consistent with that gospel, as when the Council of Jerusalem needed to determine whether circumcision was necessary for Gentiles, Acts 15, and they give the authority, two, to assess whether or not a certain person belongs to the gospel as a church, does any time it baptizes someone into the membership. 
Once the judicial assessment is made, the key holder then makes an official declaration on heaven's behalf, like a judge or like an ambassador speaking on behalf of a king. The holder officially declares before them the nations of the earth, this doctrine is consistent with Jesus' gospel, or this practice is not. He is a kingdom citizen, or we can no longer affirm his citizenship. Whoever possesses the keys has an interpretive and judicial authority over the gospel word and gospel citizens. Strictly speaking, proclaiming the gospel is not the same thing as exercising the keys. If by proclaiming we have in mind someone standing in a pulpit and preaching, but so closely but so closely are proclamation and the keys intertwined that the latter cannot be used without the former. If the keys are likened to the speaking of a verdict and the pounding of a gavel, proclaiming the gospel can be likened to reading the law upon which a verdict is based. For the judge to make a verdict, he must first read the law. That said, there is an, an implied sense in which issuing a verdict proclaims the law that the verdict upholds. For that reason, it is not too much of a stretch to say that the keys not only authorizes their holder to protect and preserve the gospel, but also enable the holder to proclaim the gospel. They present a formal decision about what constitutes a right confession and who is a true confessor. I'll just end with this last paragraph. To put all this in extremely practical terms, the keys are the authority over a church's statements of faith and membership. Church membership, after all, is a relationship between an individual Christian and a local church, and it's characterized by church's formal affirmation of the individual's profession of faith and an individual's submission to that church's affirmation and oversight. One doesn't simply join a church, one submits to it. Yeah, so I mean, that kind of deals with the question, well, who are you guys to say who's part of the kingdom of heaven and who's not? Right. Um, that sounds kind of judgy. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the idea in a in a modern culture. People right. are going to say that sounds just super judgmental, and you make the church to sound very exclusive. Yeah. And you're saying some are in or some are out, and you're actually going farther than that. Not only to say some are in and, and some are out, but this person is in and this person is out. Yeah. That would be unique to the way that we do membership, right? Right. Uh, to the best of our abilities. We want to check people's passports to see that they truly are citizens of the kingdom of yep. heaven. And obviously, again, we're limited in our understanding and discernment. Right. We can get this wrong. But we do ask a lot of questions uh, to find out if someone genuinely has been uh, born again by mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so we ask people about their testimonies, when they came to Jesus, how their life changed after they placed their faith in Jesus— and, you know, if there are concerns where they are saying something that is unbiblical or untrue of the gospel, uh, or we don't see, think there seems to be an evidence of repentance, right, and a turning away from sin, and that would be obvious, you know, if they're living in a, you know, if they're experiencing an affair and they're, you know, shameless about it or any number of other right. you know, sexual acts, uh, well, then we would say, hold up. We, we can't have confidence as a church in saying that you are indeed a Christian, so we would encourage that person in the gospel, and we would withhold membership for that person. Right. Exactly. And so the whole point is, okay, in the Episcopalian structure, the bishop, in a sense, has the authority of who's in, who's out. He wields the keys. In the Presbyterian model— uh, for the most part, it's the it's the elders and the presbytery, in a sense, who have that authority to wield the keys. 
Now, there is the sense that in most Presbyterian polity structures, the congregation does choose and elect their elders. But once they elect their elders, the elders do have the authority then to say who's in and out. Uh, and then in the congregational model, we're saying that the gathered church, the church plural, like all the members together have the authority to say who's in and who's out. They possess mm-hmm. and wield the keys. So that's, I mean, that's fundamentally it. Like when you boil it down, who has the keys? Yeah. Who, who says who's in and who's out? Well, the thing that persuades me to be a congregationalist is is five words, tell it to the church. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, to me, that that just hits the nail on the head right there where it's like, wh- what do you do with that? Yeah. Why? why? It, like that, w- that shouldn't be there if it's a Episcopalian polity. If that's what the Bible actually prescribes as Episcopalianism, that shouldn't be there. It should only be tell it to the bishop, tell it to the episcopos. Right. That's it. That's that's what it should say. Right. And and maybe you're going. Well, may, I I don't see Matthew 18 making that much clear. And again, you move forward in the Bible, you get to the New Testament, or mm. you get to the epistles, yep. and in First Corinthians, and it seems like this becomes even more clear, clear. than Matthew 18, because now you're seeing. Matthew 18, applied. Exactly. So, are we going to jump there? 1 Corinthians 5? Yeah. So, 1 Corinthians 5, you got a very peculiar situation. Uh, Real quick, one one comment before we jump. It's important to know that where, uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them is not about whether or not Jesus is present when two or three people are gathered just together, randomly praying, gathered. Just doing anything. Or... It's about the process of church discipline. Well, it's, it's, it's about... Yeah, it's about the process of church... It's about a decision being made. It's about a wielding of the keys. Yes. So, like, how are the keys wielded? They're wielded by people, a plurality of people, gathering together as the church. Yes. Yeah. And professing the same gospel, people who agree, you believe in the same gospel as I believe in. We believe in the same thing, and we, in this plurality, two, three, or more, we now possess and are able to say, this other guy over here is also believes in the same gospel we believe in, or he doesn't. And he's either in or he's out. So yeah. it's not localized into one person. Yeah. And, and and the uh, yeah. So church discipline best expresses the wielding of the keys. But also the wielding of the keys is seen in baptism. Mm-hmm. Who are we baptizing and and having enter into membership? Yeah. And, and Jesus is saying that he will be there when those decisions are being made. Yeah, it's an it, that that he will be part of that. It's a it, yeah, it's a decision that in a sense agrees with his decision in a sense. Yeah. All right, First Corinthians 5. So you have a situation. Things are pretty bad. <laughs> Very bad. You've got a guy who's having sexual relations with his stepmom. Yeah. And the church is tolerating it. Yeah. And Paul says it's to their shame. Yeah. And it even seems that the reason uh, they are approving of this is because they have 
tolerance, right? They're being a tolerant church, and they're actually being arrogant mm. in their tolerance, almost like a badge of honor, like, look how accepting we are. Well, even if you, <laughs> if you go further down in chapter 6, you know, all things are lawful for me. He's Paul's quoting things that they're saying. But then Paul says, but not all things are helpful. And then he quotes them again. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be do- dominated by anything. And then they, he quotes them again. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then Paul says, and God will destroy both one and the other. So yeah. they're basically saying this whole sexual immorality thing, it's just like stomach. It's food for the stomach. Like our bodies are made for this sexual experience. It's just like eating food. Yeah. And he's saying, no, it's not. You don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But because of their tolerance, because of their, indeed, we might say, acceptance, yeah. Paul's saying, you're arrogant. Yeah. This is not how you should be acting in this situation. You should be calling out this person's sin. Yeah. It, it is a sin that was so significant that even unbelievers thought it was an abomination. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, and when you have people outside the church going, hey, this is this is whack, right? Like, yeah. This is just totally out of bounds. It gives a very bad name to the church that's supposed to be representing oh. the purity and holiness of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so he's saying, you know what? This is how I want you to act in this situation. When you are together, right, I want you to actually treat this person as an unbeliever yeah. and remove them from the church, yeah. right? Uh, now I'm looking for the exact verses so that we can get it right here. Verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled, verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, now does that language not sound so much like what we just read in Matthew 18, where you have, when you're gathered, when you're you're assembled, assembled, when you you also have... this This is a plural you. This isn't a singular you. Yeah. And then you have also uh, the power of our Lord Jesus in a unique way being yeah. manifested in this gathering, right. in this assembly. And together, all of a sudden, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his body. Yeah, right. and just for the context there, to understand exactly what he means by that, in verse 2, are you, and are you, er- sorry, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn let him who has done this be removed from among you right that is excommunication that is the end of matthew 18's process where eventually you you tell it to the church and then you you if he doesn't repent you kick him out you excommunicate him and you treat him as a gentile tax collector as a non-believer because you no longer have confidence that this man believes in the same gospel that you believe in because he's clearly it hasn't affected him because he's clearly still living in unrepentant sin. And the mark of, of like the effectual working of the gospel in your life that you have truly believed in this, not just intellectually, but believed in like trusted by faith in Christ and repented of your sin, is you leave your old life behind. doesn't mean you still don't wrestle with the flesh. You're not going to be sinless, you're not sinless, but you are going to sin less. Yeah, sin less, and you're going to have a repentant spirit. And when yeah. you do sin and, and a brother bring, reveals it to you, hey, you've been sinning this way. If you have the spirit in you, you're going to be grieved and you're going to repent. Yeah. If you say, nope, I'm going to continue to live like this, that's like... Yeah, you're not, you're not perfect, but you're being perfected. Yeah. 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 So, and then on the 
question of judging, because you brought up judging, or that doesn't sound judgy. Well, in verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, meaning like other believers, if he is guilty of sexually Im- of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, meaning non-believers? It is not those or, sorry, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So what Paul is saying here is Paul is saying that believers are supposed to judge those who are in the church. Yeah, and this is this is a, a an actual real-world example of the wielding of the keys. That's what this is. This is a, this is a loosing. This is a loosing from... The church. Yeah. And this is a, a and very self-deceived person. Yeah. You know, this is someone who thinks they're a Christian. Right. And they're clearly Definitely not. Clearly not according to the fruit. But again, if 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 Episcopalianism or even Presbyterianism is right, then this doesn't make sense. You would expect there to be a clear well, the elders among you, or the bishops, the episcopos, or whatever, uh, among you, have them deliver him over to Satan. Or he would be specifically writing to them. Writing to, and you elders at the Church of Corinth, why haven't you yet removed this man from among you? No, 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 no. There's no language like that there. It's all just the plural you, the gathered church, the members, have the authority to wield the keys to loose this man from among them. Okay, so we see that the church is involved in church discipline right. or excommunication or the removal of someone from uh, the body of, of believers, local expression of that. Uh, are we going to turn this towards now? You know, we talked about the offices. Where do we get the idea of, say, like an elder ruled or an elder led and what the differences are? Are we going to get into this in, in that podcast? We are at 50 minutes right now. Now, I would like to do a podcast episode just on elders. Okay. So maybe we table that. And know that, as you're listening, know that, yeah, the authority of elders is a discussion underneath the umbrella of, of church polity and government. But we're kind of just making the, the most generic, most foundational case for congregationalism, in a sense. And not even necessarily the different flavors of congregationalism, but the fact that the, the authority to wield the keys rests with the church member. Okay. Um, but no, that is a, a, a discussion I want to get to. Now, another, another place you see this, uh, this, this idea of the church possessing authority to make decisions and do things is... Acts 6 with, you know, there's this this issue going on in the early church. These widows, these Hellenistic widows are being, you know, overlooked in the distribution. And and it's a problem. And so then the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, the full number of the disciples, and said, is it not right that we should give uh, 
up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will not devote ourselves to prayer, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And when and what they said pleased the whole gathering. Look at that, the whole gathering. And they chose. Who's they? The whole gathering. What's the antecedent to they? The whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Pro- Procarius, and Nicanor, I don't know how to pronounce these names, <laughs> Timon, and Par- Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and prayed and laid their hands on them. So it was the gathered, gathering again. They were the ones that chose these proto-deacons. Not, not, not the... Not the apostles. Right. Yeah. Which is which is a point to, you know, uh, what Cody is getting at with uh, elder-led, not elder-ruled. Right. So, And you say proto-deacon, just to make it clear, I mean, maybe yeah. the listeners all understand this, but proto is a type, right? Yeah. And so we don't have, the, actually we don't called, have the word deacon here, so we yeah. can't say with confidence that these were deacons. But they seem to be doing... The work of a deacon. Yep. Serving. Yep. So there's that again. That, that's where we see, again, the gathering, the gathered church has an authority to make decisions. Right. Not even just the binding and loosing decisions, which is kind of the, the big decision, the authority, who wields the keys. This isn't even a wielding of the keys. This is just authority to even pick deacons. But they, they possess that authority. Another place, obviously, this is a very contentious, this is one of those... You know, as Matthew 16 is a is kind of a central text that you have to deal with in this discussion of church polity. Acts 15 is another one of these texts that you have to deal with in in the discussion of church polity, because you have this Jerusalem council, and and obviously Presbyterians very much build their 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 polity off of this idea of well, you send elders from a congregation to this other location, we could call it, in their language, a presbytery. You send delegates, representatives, leaders of a local congregation to this other place made up of representatives from other local congregations, and they come to a decision, and then, and then they, they send that decision out back to these local congregations, and it's, it's authoritative. That's the, kind of the, the case that they're making. And so this is really their example of how a, a Presbyterian polity works. The congregation chooses a, a leaders. So in this case, in Acts 15, there was some false teaching, in a sense, coming down from Judea down to this church. Is this Where is this at? Where are they at here? Acts 15? Yeah. What church are they at? Antioch. Yeah. Antioch in Syria. So... Yeah, I'll just even read it, starting in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed. So here we go. They were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So it's assumed that they were appointed by the church. Okay. The church of Antioch and Syria appointed them. And obviously Paul and Barnabas were, were leaders, Paul being certainly an apostle. So being sent on their way by the church, there, there it is right there, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church 
and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. So we see three categories there. We see the church, the gathering. We see the apostles. We've already said that we believe that the, the office of apostle has ceased. And then we have the elders, presbyteros. And they gathered all that God had uh, declared, all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So then we have in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinct distinction between us and them. I'm going to skip because Peter's just, you know, pushing back against this idea that you need to be circumcised. And then Paul and Barnabas give their defense, da-da-da-da-da. And then jumping down to verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So so you can't argue that, oh, well, when it says the church, that meant the apostles and or the elders with the people, because those three terms are separated from yeah. each other, and they're distinct. You see them repeated, repeated throughout this right. chapter. Right. It's not as though when 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 Luke is writing this, that when he says the apostles and elders, he means that they represent the whole church. No, they are distinguished from the whole church. They are certainly leaders in the church. But there is this other category of the church, and the church obviously possessing some type of authority in this debate that's going on here. So that's the whole question. Well, who has this, who has this authority to determine what is orthodox and what is heterodox? What is gospel? What is not gospel? Is it, do we have to circumcise Gentiles in order for them to be saved? Who has the authority to determine gospel doctrine? And this even gets back to the binding and loosing. Like, okay, if you need to be baptized to come into church membership, this is kind of like, well, do you need to be circumcised to come into church membership? And if they say, no, you don't. They come to that agreement. Um, and I think it's, it's key to see that. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church, with the whole church. This wasn't just a, a unanimous decision or just a, a, a monolithic decision of just the leaders. It was a decision of everybody, the apostles, the elders, and the church. Everybody was involved in this decision. So, mm -hmm. It's also worth pointing out that, um, you know, like in, in Acts it says that they were sent, right, like Paul and Barnabas were sent. By the church. Right. Yep. But in Galatians 2, it's interesting because Paul says— then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was that I had not, um, or that I was not or had not run in vain. Yeah. Um, but so um, that's interesting because Paul had a revelation that, that he should go, mm. and yet the church also sent him. Mm. So the Holy Spirit was working in multiple ways 
to send Paul to Jerusalem to um, to to have this decision meted out. Um, so uh, there there was obviously a lot of factors that God was working in to make sure that this decision w- was made. Yeah. So Paul and Barnabas are sent out with this letter, and jumping in verse 25, it says, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord. So again, this was a, this was, this was a decision made by many people to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So again, a plural decision, a plurality of people making this decision not just a unanimous decision of the leadership or of one person even, or even just the apostles. Do you have any more to add about Acts 15, Cody? Oh, I'm sure there's a lot more we could emphasize, but since we're focusing just on the involvement of the church and the congregation, I think we've kind of hit things pretty well. Sweet. Well, for the most part, that is... A case for congregationalism. We we haven't talked about the priesthood of the believer. Oh, yeah. That's I mean, huge. that's that's pretty uh, foundational. Yeah, mark we got to get we got to quick get into that a little bit. Yep. In that we believe that the Holy Spirit is uh, the one who regenerates all believers right. and dwells in all believers. Right. And so there's a sense in which you can trust the judgment of Christians uh, in the local church, the members of the body of Christ, because guess what? They are led by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. He has uh, given them the mind of Christ uh, to help them to discern right from wrong and good from bad. Right. So uh, since the whole body is empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same one Spirit, again, that's another reason why we believe that the congregation should be involved in big church decisions. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and First Peter two nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. Uh, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I would say the first arguments that we pre- we presented. Uh, were much more prescriptive. Yeah. They were explicit. This is more of a theological argument. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This idea that there's been this this dual office, starting with Adam in the garden, of priest-king. He represents God as a priest. He, he rules God's creation as a king. And, and you can kind of trace that priest-king office all the way through Scripture. Obviously, David... This Davidic king, he 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 kind of acts like a, a priest sometimes too, and it, it's a little interesting. Melchizedek was a priest king. Yeah, well, well, I think it's important to note that um, Melchizedek was a priest king. He was a priest, and he was the king of yeah. Salem. Yeah. But, um, and and that that's important because when he met Abraham, Abraham offered tithes. Uh, yep, a tithe to Melchizedek. Yeah. But in Abraham's descendants, uh, God was very clear that the offices of priest and king had to be separate. Yeah. So um, the uh, the the kings came from David. Judah's descendants. Yep. Yep. And the priests came from the Levitical 
line. Right. And they had to be separate. And there was um, there was a king who was it was it Uzziah? I'm I'm for, I'm forgetting. Well, Saul I, even crossed the line a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that that. that there was a king. I know his name started with a U. But he he attempted to uh, take uh, the priestly duties yeah. and got executed him. Yeah, um, because that was absolutely not allowed. Right. Um, and the, even when David um, attempted to move the ark and did it improperly, mm-hmm. right? Uzzah died. Yeah. because of that. Yeah, um, because Uzzah touched the ark right because they were transporting it incorrectly right um because ultimately because david didn't in- involve the priests properly in uh in that uh, in that movement and so uh that's ultimately what is what the author of hebrews argues is that christ becomes a priest mm-hmm. and well and god god declares in psalm 110 that christ is a priest after the Melchizedekian order. Right, exactly. Um, and so, and like in Hebrews 10, in, uh, in verse 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. But... Or for by offering a single sacrifice, he perfected for all time those who would or who are sanctified. Um, and so, uh, and then in verse nineteen, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Um, and so I, I think it's important to understand that the priesthood of all believers is a very holy thing that church governance um, cannot cannot impede on. Because right. what it means is that if you think about the job of a priest or the role of a priest was to enter into the holy place of God and offer a sacrifice. Mm. And uh and the like the Old Testament saints were not allowed to do that. Um only the priests were. Right. And Christ He was a medi- the priest was a mediator between right. man and God. Yep. And Christ now um doing that and offering that once for all sacrifice has now made all believers in him priests who can enter the holy place through Christ's sacrifice and approach the throne of God. And, uh, and it's, it's just inappropriate on like the highest level for any human being to try to impede that through some form of church governance. Right. Exactly. And so when, when, the, when the New Testament and New Covenant member is united in Christ, you know, by believing in the gospel, by being sealed with the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, they, they are united in Christ. There is no mediator anymore in between right. this, this individual Christian and Christ. And, and when you're in Christ, then you, the argument goes, you then 
receive in Christ his offices. Yeah. So that's why we say we are all priests, because we're all directly united in Christ. There's nothing in between me in Christ, you in Christ, Cody in Christ. And that's true of any person who's believed in Christ and believed in the gospel and been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So we're all priests. We all have a direct connection to Christ, the true mediator, the true priest, the true king. Mm -hmm. And then as the king, too, then we also, in a sense, acquire his office of, of, of kingship as well. So we are priest kings. Therefore, then, we we all have the ability, the jurisdiction to, you know, in a sense, offer up praise to him, to enter the Holy of Holies, to be in the presence of God, and to to even uh, make kingly decisions. And that's where we get to this idea of of wielding the keys of the kingdom. As as kings, all kings, in a sense, we then get to collectively make those more judicial type of decisions, uh, the judging of who's in and who's out, what's good, go- what's gospel doctrine, what's not gospel doctrine. And again, we all possess that. Right. We're a priesthood uh, of believers. It's not just localized to one man, mm-hmm. a bishop or the, you know, the Catholic view of priests. So yeah. And Jonathan Lehman makes the case like when you, if you don't believe in congregationalism, then you basically fire your church members because he see, he makes this case that the 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 member is an office in a sense mm-hmm. in Christ and when you when you set up one man a bishop as this this office above the members you in a sense fire your church members from their office of being a church member in Christ of being a priesthood yeah and i mean that's very clear when we're told that the work of the elders are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. The the saints, the members, are doing the ministry. The leaders are just equipping them for it. So that's huge. The Episcopalian idea is basically that the bishop does the ministry. And that just we don't that's just not biblical. So any additional thoughts on priesthood of believers or any other arguments for congregationalism uh not so much i think just maybe to wrap things up yeah yeah i think it's just good to come back to why we even have this discussion right and the fact is a healthy church requires that we honor and obey what the scripture has to say in the structure right of the church and if you're going to be faithful in following what the Bible says about polity, it ends up promoting and protecting the gospel, right? This is going to lead to, hopefully, ideally, uh, a more evangelistic church, mm. a more servant-oriented church, uh, uh, a healthier church with better accountability, uh, because... That's that's the ideal. We trust that God knows what He's doing. <laughs> right, exactly. He doesn't prescribe things, you know, and and just have this idea that well, God doesn't know what He's doing. It's just going to go bad then. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that when you obey God's prescriptions and commands and what He lays out in the Scripture, you'll actually be blessed in it. 
Yeah, because I just think it's easy for us to get caught up. You know, maybe someone's thinking this as they listen to the podcast, if they've made it this far. Like, man, you guys just, you focus on these issues. They seem a little heady. Like, why are you wasting your time? And the thing is, is we care about a church being fruitful and faithful. Yep. Right? And uh, in all areas of life, not just in our personal devotion and dependence, right, on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, but but in everything we yep. do. Exactly. Well, sweet. Thanks again for li- listening to the Preach and Persuade podcast. If you haven't already, please leave a rating on whatever you know platform you're, you're listening to this on, whether it be Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify. would love for you to leave a five-star rating and help this podcast be discovered by more people. Uh, and also, if you have not already, check out the new AFCI website, afci.us. And this podcast will also be available on on my ministry's website. So if you ever want to share it with a friend, obviously you can share it through Apple Podcasts or any medium like that. But you can also just share the AFCI website and, and it will be there as well. So that's pretty cool. But again, thanks for listening and have a great day. Bye.